0: Shalom, everyone. I'm going to read to you the new Points to Ponder uh, column. This one is for the weekly Torah portion of Beshalach. And I'm going to try and expand it as I read, uh, which I did only a little bit before. I'm going to try and do it some more now, and let's see how it goes. So the title is The Subtle Art of Giving Up. Just one stop before arriving in Mount Sinai, at a place called Refidim, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. The Jews succeeded in conquering them temporarily, but it became clear that this would be an eternal struggle. The verse goes, There shall be a war for the Lord against Amalek from generation to generation. Ki Hashem midor dor. This is the original Hebrew. Following this, the Jewish people were given what is perhaps the harshest commandment in all of the Torah, to eradicate the people of Amalek from existence. Fortunately for us, and for any potential descendant of Amalek, the people of Amalek don't exist anymore. We have no idea who they are, so this commandment is out of date. It is not applicable in any way in our generation. So we don't have to contend in any way with this commandment on a practical level. But the question still remains: What does Amalek represent spiritually? What is the deeper meaning of the battle with Amalek? Every idea in the Torah also has a deep inner, internal meaning. This was a tenet, a central tenet of the Baal Shem Tov, that every sentence, every verse, every commandment, every story in the Torah is eternally and universally applicable. What What about all the things that are? cannot be performed today? What about all the stories that have to do with history? What about all the prophecies that have to do with the future? What about everything that doesn't apply to every person, like commandments only for men or only for women? The answer is, all of them apply to everyone in some sense. There has to be some sense in which a more spiritual, deeper way, in which every story, every element of the Torah is applicable to everyone. So, going with this, we have to ask what is the deeper meaning of the whole story of the Amalek people, the Amalekites attacking the Israelites, the battle against them, the commandment to eradicate them, everything, we have to understand this on a deeper level. Now, according to the teachings of Hasidut, Hasidism, Amalek represents the power of doubt. Amalek is an agent of skepticism. This could be skepticism that arises from within us, From inside, we have uh, constant thoughts about doubting our faith in God, but it could be doubting other things as well. And sometimes it can come from the outside. Sometimes it could be a person, a society, a book, uh, a movement that is all about um, celebrating uh, and, and, and putting the ideal of skepticism as the highest ideal. So Amalek is an agent of skepticism. Where, where, is, where does this come from? In a minute we'll open this up and we'll see what kind of skepticism exactly Amalek represents. But just to get uh, our heads around this idea, where is this coming from? So the, the, the main hint or illusion that is given to this is that the numerical value of the word Amalek in Hebrew, which is 240, the gematra, this is how it's called, the numerical value, equals has the same numerical value as the word, the Hebrew word for doubt, which is Safek. So Safek and Amalek both equal to 240. So it's the same, it's the same number. There's some connection between the two. But of course, this isn't conclusive. Every time we have a numerical value um, e- equation, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same thing. It could mean that it's a, a antagonist. It could mean a, a whole bunch of things. It all has to do with our interpretation. But there is another illusion a much more clear indication of this idea in the actual biblical text itself if we read it uh, uh, just read it in, in a straightforward way the verse and amalek came and waged war with israel which is exodus 17:8 uh, comes directly appears directly after the verse is the lord in our midst or not this is verse 7 just before This verse, is the Lord in our midst or not, is a description of the sense of doubt that arose among the Jewish people surrounding their lack of uh, drinking water. That was the story just before the story about the attack of the Amalekites. So the the fact we have these two verses, one after the other, that there's one verse that says, is the Lord in our midst or not? And then immediately afterwards, Amalek came and waged war with Israel, uh, shows that there's a deep connection, that the moment that the Jewish people experienced doubt about the presence of God in their midst, then the Amalekites were able to attack them. So the uh, gematria, the numerical thing, is only assisting this um, more straightforward idea. Now, we say that Amalek is doubt, and because Amalek is like the epitome of evil, something we have to eradicate, that seems... It seems to mean that um, um, that doubt is necessarily and altogether bad. And of course, this is not the case. Without skepticism, A, there would be no science, uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> and that is, science is a good thing, it's, and it wouldn't be a good thing not to have it. And also, within the Jewish tradition, within the tradition of the Beit HaMidrash, the house of study, within the Jewish learning tradition, Judaism celebrates the asking of questions and the re-examination of principles. So doubt is not in and of itself a bad thing. So in order to comprehend this association of Amalek with doubt, we must fine-tune our definition. And we need to propose that Amalek symbolizes a particular kind of doubt, not just any old doubt or doubt in general, Amalek symbolizes a particular kind of doubt which we can call radical skepticism. What is radical skepticism? It's the kind of skepticism that is never, ever satisfied with any answer, with any proof, with any piece of evidence. In the face of any and every conclusion in the world, it would always argue and ask, who says? Maybe you're wrong. Are you absolutely sure? Do you know this with absolute certainty? This is radical skepticism. And now, this kind of skepticism or skepticism in general may offer very, a very positive contribution in certain contexts. Obviously, we don't have to accept everything uh, at face value and we need to question and that's how we learn things and that's how we advance and we grow and, and skepticism in itself is a very, very good thing. But if we're only skeptic and skepticism is like the highest ideal and has the final word and there isn't a kind of decisiveness and an ability to make decisions not based on absolute knowledge, which we never have, by the way, uh, as, as a counterbalance to this skepticism, then we're locked forever in a kind of square one situation. Because whenever we want to advance, comes this kind of radical doubt, and says, are you absolutely sure? Maybe there's a better option. And, you know, we have this expression of FOMO, the fear of missing out, and it, it constantly drives that fear in our head, into our heads. And we can't do anything. And living with this kind of radical skepticism is a bit like building a house of cards opposite an open window. The wind will constantly hit it and cause it to collapse and we will never be able to advance beyond like one or two cards. It's impossible. Now, this understanding of Amalek, Amalek representing radical doubt, aligns beautifully with two things. The meaning of the, the name Amalek The name Amalek can be understood. It's not just a name. It can be understood as meaning something. And also the name of the place where the battle against Amalek was waged, which was called Refidim. So Amalek. Amalek can be read in Hebrew as a contraction of two words, which is Amalek. What does Amalek mean? Amalek means a decapitating nation. A nation that, so to speak, decapitates its opponents. Amalek. It causes their heads. Let's abstract it a little bit. Their heads, their cognitive level, their intellectual, um, you know, world, to be disconnected from their body, which is the more uh, the active, the world of decision making. When you think about it, this is exactly what radical skepticism does. It confines, it locks up all the ideas into our heads, within our heads, and it doesn't allow even a single idea to de- sort of descend from the realm of thought to the realm of action. Because whenever, some, whenever we have an idea, it says, who, who says, maybe, are you sure? And the ultimate result of this is that all ideas are in our heads, disconnected from the body, and it decapitates us. Metaphorically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, it decapitates us. It cuts off the head from the body. Now, uh, what about refidim, the name of the place? Refidim, the sages, interpret this as alluding to Again, a contraction of two words, refi yadaim, or refiyon yadaim, which literally means weak or inept or uh, lifeless hands. Hands. Refiyon yadaim, yadaim is hands, and refiyon is something that's sort of limp. And refi yadaim is when our hands are limp and they can't do anything. And now their interpretation is that this place refidim symbolized a state, in the Jewish people, that we became lax in observing the commandments. We weakened our hands from performing the commandments. And this is how Amalek was able to attack us. This goes along with the kind of doubt and is God in our midst or not. But we can also sort of reverse the cause and effect order here. And we can say that maybe it was the other way around. Because Amalek Amalek attacked us because we were in a state of doubt. And once we struggled with Amalek, we were preserved in a state of helplessness. We were uh, paralyzed. We couldn't do anything. And it leaves us sort of empty-handed, empty-handed and unable to uh, move on, to advance towards the next destination. What is the next destination? It's Sinai. So Amalek is coming and attacking us just before Mount Sinai, which is where we are going to receive the Torah. And the Torah here represents our destiny, our calling, our mission in life. Uh, what we have to do in the future, what we came into the world to do. Each one has his own Mount Sinai. And just before your Mount Sinai comes this sort of demon inside of us, each of us. It's before we get married. It's before we find a new job. It's before any major decision. Every major decision is like our Mount Sinai. This is where we get our Torah. This is where we get our, our, our calling, our destiny. And then comes this Amalek and decapitates us metaphorically, makes sure we only sort of go in circles inside our heads, and we don't actualize any decision, again, like the house of cards with the wind. And then it leaves us in a state of helplessness and with our hands tied and weak and limp hands. This is Refidim. So we can't get out of Refidim and advance to Mount Sinai unless we conquer Amalek in some way. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we we conquer Amalek? How do we uh, uh, move beyond this kind of radical skepticism that can attack us, within us? So this too, we can learn from looking at the details of the battle between the Jews and the Amalekites in the desert. How did this battle take place? So the battle was conducted on two planes, the material and the spiritual. On the surface, on the ground, Joshua... And his soldiers fought the, um, the Amalekites' military forces. This was a straightforward, regular uh, combat. But there was another level. On the other level, Moses, he wasn't a warrior. He ascended to the top of the adjacent hill. And what he did was that he lifted his hands heavenward. And he had two people uh, helping him and helping his hands sort of raise because it was, it was a lot of effort to do this all day. And what happened was that Whenever his arms became tired, by the way, this is again the metaphor of the arms, right? This is not just an idea of the sages that *refidim* is limp hands. It's the the hands motif is in the story, on a on a on, in the simple uh, reading of it. So anyway, whenever he was able to raise his arms properly, then the the Jews would be then the Hebrews on the surface on the ground in the battlefield would become stronger and would, would win. But whenever his hands tired. fell down then the Amalekites would be would be the ones to overpower and this battle which was an inner spiritual battle within Moses in some way because it all depended on how how much he was able to raise his hands uh this is how it how it it came about and and what's going on on the on the ground level is really dependent on what's going on at the hilltop inside Moses it's this is where the this is where the real war is going on it's a beautiful image of an external war and an internal war. The external war is with the Amalekites. But the internal war is Moses within himself. Moses is kind of fighting his own inner Amalek within his heart, within his psyche. And whenever he, he vanquishes and conquers this inner Amalek, then Joshua and his soldiers can actually uh, beat the Amalekite soldiers. And when, whenever he fails, they fail also. And the end, the, the happy ending, the happy ending is that the final verse of the story is Joshua weakened Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, and the Jewish people prevailed, and, and the story basically ends. Now, at least two details in this story uh, raise questions, and we have to understand that. So the first question is this. The Hebrews were able to conquer Amalek through Moses' raising his hands. Now, just take a look at this image. You see someone raising his hands. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? When you see a picture, that you look at the picture of someone with his hands raised. So this is a universal symbol of surrender. Not of winning, not of conquering, not of uh, winning a battle. It's not like a V victory sign. It's the opposite. It's I give up. I, in Hebrew, when you say, uh, when you want to say that someone gives up, you say he raised his hands. I, I give up, because that's that's what we do. And this is the universal symbol of when you surrender. It's either a white flag or you go out like this, right, to show that you are not holding any weapons. So this is very strange. The fact that the Jews were able to win this war by having Moses stand on a hilltop and and <laughs> raise his hands in the universal uh, symbol, gesture of surrender, of giving up, this is very, very strange. The other strange thing, is the wording used for when the battle was over and Joshua won. It doesn't say he won. It doesn't say he beat them. It doesn't say say he conquered them. It says, Vayachalosh, Yehoshua. Vayachalosh is weakened them. And this whole word in Hebrew is very strange because it means to conquer, but it comes from the word weak. But so the, the one explanation is that it means to weaken the enemy. Either way, it's a very strange word. It's a singular word. And it raises the question... Why was it only weakening? Why not use the other more common words? And did Joshua only weaken the Amalekites? He didn't conquer them? He, he didn't. They didn't win the battle? So it's very strange. Now, so two riddles. One is, why is it the raising of the hands? And why is it the word weaken? And we can add, by the way, a third riddle. And the third riddle is that following this battle, we get a, a contradictory commandment. The, on the one hand, it says we must eradicate all memory... Of Amalek, this is the phrasing. Timchad tem- 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 zecher Amalek. Zecher is the memory of Amalek. On the other hand, it says, "Remember what Amalek did to you." And the word "remember" appears both in as a commandment to remember and as a commandment of forgetting and, and eradicating all memory. So this is so this is the third riddle now. So we have three riddles as to what's going on in this battle. Now the answer to all of these riddles is one, and it is a very very deep answer. What can we do? What is it in our power to do when we're confronted by this kind of radical skepticism that demands absolute certainty? The answer is nothing at all. This is a perfect exercise in futility because no amount of arguments, no amount of evidence will ever satisfy this kind of radical skepticism. Whatever we do, it is going to say I'm, uh, you can always doubt it. And I'm not so sure. And you're not absolutely sure. You know that even for many, many years, people believe that in, at least in mathematics, you can have absolute proof. Until came this very, very clever genius. He ended up losing his mind because of this. But this very genius mathematician called Kurt Gödel. And, and he has something called the incompleteness theorems. And he was able to prove... That you can't prove anything even in simple arithmetics. It's always based on a certain uh, framework of assumptions that, that provide the infrastructure, let's say, of, of mathematics. And it's, you can always come up with the different kinds of, of, of sort of framework. And so the idea is that really, in no area in life can we find absolute proof. There's no such thing. Science doesn't prove anything. Science finds sufficient evidence for something. And everything in the world is like this. So, there's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do when faced with sort of radical skepticism. So, what can we do? We can give up. We can raise our hands and can say, you know what, Amalek? You're right. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the proofs. I don't know for sure. How do, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in the Torah? Why do you think that uh, that this this job is going to be good for you? Why do you think this spouse is going to be good for you? Who says? Who says? Are you absolutely sure? I don't know. I don't know. You're right, Amalek. In Hebrew, it rhymes, by the way. Amalek atatzadek. Amalek, you're right. I, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the proofs. But you know what I do know? It's what you told me. You taught me. You taught me. To ask who says, says who. So I'm, I'm saying that to you now. Who says that I need to have proof for everything? Who says that I need to provide you with proof? Who says that you have the final word on everything? Who says skepticism is the highest ideal there is? You'll never be satisfied anyway. So let's, let's, we're going to do this, Amalek. You go ahead, keep doing your thing, you walk alongside me you drive me crazy, you'll you'll try to dissuade me, you'll try to make me go back, you'll do your thing. And I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to ignore you. And I'm going to go on marching to my personal Mount Sinai that's waiting for me in the future. And I'm going to marry that spouse, and I'm going to take that job, and I'm going to pick up the Torah, and I'm going to believe in, in God, and I'm going to do all the things that you demand that I give you something that I can't give you. So I give up. I raise my hands. Now, this is brilliant when you think about it. This approach to dealing with Amalek is, is where instead of fighting doubt, we say, well, doubt is part of me, doubt is part of faith, doubt is part of my life, and I accept. I accept Amalek into my own life. I, I take in an element of Amalek into me. I sort of convert Amalek to my side. And this completely disarms this kind of radical skepticism. It's not ready for something like this. It comes fighting, and then we say, yeah, you're right, you're right. There is room for doubt. There is always room for doubt. So, it, we disarm Amalek. And in fact, we do more than disarm Malik. We use Amalek's weapon, the weapon of skepticism, against itself. We use skepticism in order to throw doubt on the very ideology of skepticism. We we doubt, doubt itself. And now this answers all the riddles. So now we have an understanding of why we, why Moses raised his hands, because he was giving up in some way. He was saying, yeah, Amalek is, is part of us. We can't win Amalek in a regular sort of way that we sort of get rid of him and that's it. This also explains why the word was weakened Amalek, because we're not trying to kill Amalek. We're trying to weaken him. We're trying to take him off from being the highest ideal Take, we want to take the, the idea, the, the tool of skepticism and remove it from like the, the epics of the pyramid, from the highest level, and, rem- and make it a secondary I- ideal. Make it a, a tool for something, for, for faith, for decision-making, for things that are not absolute. This is when doubt is a very good thing. The only problem is that it's when it's all-powerful. But if we weaken a malik, it becomes a very good thing. And also it explains why uh, we have to both remember and forget Amalek, because on the one hand we remember Amalek, we we take him in, we preserve him in some way, we preserve. We we mention Amalek every year, all the time. Amalek, the Amalekites themselves have been gone for centuries. Who knows, for millennia. But we still, the Jewish people still talk about him, and every year, and we and we discuss them, and we Purim, the holiday, is all about winning over Amalek. And because we want to remember them, because doubt is a central part of being human and a central part of being Jewish and a central part of of science and and all this. And we need, we need to remember, but we also need to forget. Because we need to, again, weaken Amalek. We need to take him down from his sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of this chair, uh, like being like this monarch or being this all-powerful dictator. And we're taking him down from that role, so we forget him a little bit, we win over, we overcome doubt, because we're going on into Sinai, and to receive the Torah, we overcame the doubt of refidim of Amalek. So we forget about it, but we also remember it's paradoxical, but it goes together in a very, very deep way. Now, uh, this the, all, all this can become even deeper, if you have the time, and the patience, and the energy, and the attention, than uh, it's not going to be long, but we're going to do a short excursion, a little bit into the world of the Kabbalistic Sefirot. The Sefirot are, of course, the channels of sort of energy and 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 um, light that God uses to create the world and and keep the world going. And it's sort of the inner map of everything. And we just have to know two of the Sefirot here. It's not not the whole story. Um, if we go into this a little bit, the the whole thing it becomes deeper. So. We said that Amalek, so to speak, decapitates the head from the body, right? It disconnects the intellect from the emotions and the and action. So in the terms of the sefirot, the sefirotic map corresponds to the human body, and there is one particular sefirah that corresponds to the neck, and it connects the intellectual sefirot, which are called Chuchmain Binah, wisdom and understanding. It connects wisdom and understanding to the emotional sefirot, and this Firah is called Dat, which is translated as knowledge. Knowledge here is not just having pieces of knowledge. It's like the verse that says, uh, Adam knew his wife Eve. It's like, it's like uh, intimate knowledge. It's like when you know something, it's, you're connected to it. So this is Dat. Dat is what connects the head with the body, the intellect with the emotions. And this is what Amalek attacks. And what Amalek does is that it by insisting on having absolute certainty, absolute knowledge, is sort of overtaxing that. It's like putting too much weight on the dot. It's like choking a little bit the dot, the neck. And then what happens is that it, it cuts off the head from the heart. And it cuts off the decision-making process from uh, from actually arriving at what it's supposed to arrive at, which is actually making a decision. So it says. I want absolute knowledge and then it becomes impossible to do anything and then that is sort of breaks. And, and this is the sort of decapitation or the disconnection. Okay? So now what is the solution to this? So the solution to this whenever we have something that we are too much going in circles with deliberation uh, and trying to think and considering different options and, and trying to, to make a decision, unable to make a decision we need to bypass that. Because it became like a, there's like a traffic jam there. And we need to find another way. We need to bypass that. And we need to find another sort of route, a channel between the heart and the head. And really the head is, the head is all is messed up with that also. So we need to really go above the head. We need to go. This is the second sphere we need to uh, know, which is called Ketel. Ketil is crown. The crown is the, the sephira that embodies or symbolizes the superconscious. That is, it's like the Freudian subconscious, there's a superconscious. The superconscious is above the intellect, above the head, and this is really where the soul root resides, and also where the power of faith, emunah, resides. So the idea is that that is being attacked by malik by the, this sense of doubt, We need to create a channel between the heart and the soul that's above the head. We need to bypass the head. Now, this is a very sort of um, illustrative way to think about this. How do you create a channel between the heart and what's above the head? So the answer is that you lift your hands. It's a very simple answer. When you lift your hands, there's something about lifting your hands that creates this image, this sort of channel between your heart and your superconscious that's above your head. And so this is the other explanation that goes along with this Philot. When Moses raised his hands, he created the kind of direct communication channel between faith, Emuna, which resides above the intellect, and his heart, which resides below his intellect, because the intellect was being attacked by Amalek. So now this goes along beautifully with the verse. The verse says... Vayehi Yadav Emuna Hashamish, which means he Moses was with his hands in faith until sunset. Now, th- this word here has many meanings. The simple reading, by the way, of the verse is Emuna. Emuna doesn't just mean faith; it also means strength. And so, the simple reading of the verse is that he had enough strength to raise his hands until sunset, and when the battle was over. But also, it just it also means faith. So when we we read it as meaning faith, then it says that his hands were raised up, until he could reach and connect with this sort of hidden, deep sense of faith. And 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 now, what does it mean until sunset? So we can again sunset on the simple reading is the end of the day, but we can also transition this whole image from. Uh, the temporal dimension to a sort of soul dimension, a metaphorical dimension. And then we can say that uh, what is the sun? The sun is the sun of the intellect, and of certainty and of knowledge. And and the, the place where faith is above the head, it's a place where the sun of certainty sets. And it's dark. And you don't know for sure, but you believe. And so... Where that 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 is a place. So nighttime is not just a time; it's also a place. It's a spiritual place. It's a spiritual space, where the sun of certainty doesn't shine, but does shine. We can say the moon, the moon of faith, which, by the way, the Hebrew word for faith, like I said, is emuna, and you can spell it emuna. So it has the word moon inside the word emuna, the word faith. So that's that's a nice way to think about it. So. The Sun of intellectual knowledge sets. but the moon of Emuna rises in that place that's above the regular realm of decision making, which you need to connect to whenever you are faced with the. And think about it. that's that's how it is. i mean when when a doubt attacks you and wants certain absolute knowledge, absolute proof, and you don't you can't provide it then you say, well, I don't know, but I, I choose to believe. I choose to believe something, and that's the only way I can make any decision based on um, uh, partial knowledge, which is all we ever have is partial knowledge. Now now let's connect, put it all together and and, see, and, and and finish this whole thing up. So we gave two interpretations for the raising of the hands symbol. One was that we're, you're right, we're giving up, and I, there is room for doubt, you're right, and I, do, I need to accept doubt. The other explanation just now was that we're raising our hands in order to connect to faith. So th- these two interpretations appear on the surface, maybe even contradictory. Either the raising of the hands means accepting doubt, or the raising of the hands means accepting faith. But there's no contradiction here at all. It absolutely goes together. The raising of the hand of the hands really means one thing, and the two interpretations are just two sides of the same coin. It means, I don't know, but I have faith. This is what it means raising my hands whenever you encounter this kind of amalekai demon is, I don't know, but I have faith. I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm going for it. I'm trusting my instincts, I'm trusting um, my sense of. Uh, inner sense of decision making, my heart, my soul. If it's only the intellect, I'm, I'm never going to come out of the situation. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to come out of it alive, um, and I'm just going to be trapped in square one with limp hands, um, incapacitated, um, you know, uh, immobilized, and I'm not. I won't be able to do anything. So these are the the two sides of this story. Faith is not knowledge. Faith is. Uh, believing in something despite not knowing for sure that it's true. In other words, faith and doubt absolutely go together. You can never, ever separate them. Wherever there is faith, there has to be doubt. Because if you would know for sure, it wouldn't be faith. It would be knowledge. And the whole point of faith is that there are many things in life, most things, we don't know for sure what they are, what to do about them, and we have to go beyond knowledge and we have to go into the, this territory of doubt, and only in the territory of doubt can there be faith. So the bottom line is that whenever you find yourself facing an important decision, like a career choice, like marriage, like holding on to your faith in God, and you're attacked by this demon of doubt, then you need to answer, you need to be calm, and you need to answer back, Amalek, you're right. Amalek I don't know for certain that this is the right decision, but I choose to believe that it is. Have a wonderful, beautiful Shabbat, everyone, and I'll see you in the next video. Hi, if you enjoyed this video, please press like, subscribe to the channel, and consider sharing it with your friends. See you in the next video.